Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 47 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Hope everybody's doing all right out there. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation, with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin and, of course, our new Bluegrass Fingerboard Method, Sherrod Gilchrist. Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe-style Mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein. Irish Mandolin with Marla Fibish and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com. Use the promo code MandolinBeer at checkout. And it's also brought to you by the AnyTune app, which is hands down my favorite app to use. I literally use it every single day. It does all the cool things that slowdown apps do. Um, but it has that extra feature, the reframe feature, where you can actually target the instrument you're looking for and zero rate in on it. Um, it's the best, and it's free. If you go to mandolinsabeer.com, you can find the link to download the app, and you can use it uh, on your smartphone or your uh, iPad or your Mac, whatever you're using there. Uh, it's, it's the best. Speaking of the best, you guys are the best. Thank you all so much for tuning every week and listening to the podcast. Please be sure to click subscribe and um and share this with your friends and uh, also go to the uh i haven't mentioned this in the last few weeks the spotify playlist mandolin's beer the playlist on spotify all the songs you hear on this episode you'll be able to check out and um one thing matt wanted me to let you know is he's got a brand new tune that he did with his brother the uh, and the incredible drummer jeff sipe and also uh brad williams and they did a version of mo Betta blues and it's at the very end of this podcast and he wanted me to uh to make sure I mentioned that, um, and I figured, well, heck, let's just put it at the end of the episode so you can check the whole thing out, but I'll also have a link at mandolinsandbeer.com. So let's get into the interview here with the incredible Matt Mundy. Cheers, everybody. Oh, doing wonderful. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for doing it. This is a real, it's a real highlight for me to, uh, to, to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan for just about as long as I've owned a mandolin here. So, Well, I listen, every, uh, it's my Saturday morning ritual <laughs> uh, to go to Mandolin Cafe. And Have you heard of that, Mandolin Cafe? <laughs> yeah, I've, 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 people tell yeah, me about, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> well, there's a couple of mandolin buddies out there. But anyway, I'd, I'd go there. It's just it's it's a really good podcast. You're doing a lot for the mandolin. I'm oh, sure appreciate it. Thank you so much. That means the world. Um, uh, the first time you had commented on a post I had made, 
um, I almost fell over. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, Matt Mundy, holy cow. So Great guess, and hey, you've got me today. <laughs> That's right. So um, before we uh, get too deep, what have you been up to? I, I know you have a, you're have you on a new album that was that has just come out. Yeah, I joined up with my mom's band, uh, Francis Moody, Fontana Sunset. Uh, she's a bass player. You don't know that. And, and award-winning, she's won a couple of IVMA awards for Daughters of Bluegrass back a couple, three years ago. And she's a great bass player and great singer. As a matter of fact, this year was nominated by Stigma for Bass Player of the Year and Vocalist, Female Vocalist of the Year. I was very proud. Yeah, I bet. That's amazing. It is. Well, she's uh, certainly my favorite. And so she asked, and, and I... Didn't have anything going at the time, so sitting in front of the the uh, dial at home and recording, which is fun too. But <laughs> oh, it's yeah. also not, it's nice to interact with other people when you're playing as opposed to yourself all the time. So yeah, yeah, I hear you there. That's musically what I've been doing for the past two and a half years or so. That's I knew awesome. her material, so it was a pretty easy step in. That's so, great. Um, I just had to learn kickoffs and breaks and things such as that. So. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure they're amazing kickoffs and breaks. I can't wait to uh, check it out. Yeah, we've got a new record out actually, kind of CD, whatever you want to call them these days. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, a great music. <laughs> we've got new music out. I guess would be the proper way, uh, yeah. but it's uh, what's it called? Wild and Free, actually. Francis Moody Fontana Sunset on oh. all your cheap plug here on yeah. all your. Uh, digital download site. Absolutely. Well, I'll post a link to it on uh, mandolinsandbeer.com and everybody, they can either go right from the description of the podcast or they can go to mandolinsandbeer.com and I'll I'll put some links up so people can re- uh, easily yeah. find it. Yeah, we're pretty proud of it. Pretty proud of it. My brother has a, conveniently has a studio in his basement. When he bought his new house with his wife, they sort of shook hands. She would get a hair salon and half of it, and he would get a studio and the other half. Well, there you go. So it, <laughs> it works out. I can go over there and get a, a, a flat top, and then I can go back there and play some other one. So what, what's uh, wrong with that? It's very nice. It's uh, been very good. Very good to have a, a brother with a studio. He kind of gives you cheap rates, but, well, <laughs> as, as good as a brother's going to do, I suppose. Well, you put out the Monday Boys a few years ago. That You, you yeah. had mentioned that was recorded there? Mm-hmm. 2017, as a matter of fact, yeah, yeah, that's a good... yeah. It's something we just decided to um, to do. We had actually broke his studio in just to fill us putting a couple of tracks. Hey, this is pretty fun. Let's do some more, and and before you know it, you know, we had ten or twelve songs, and decided to get pictures in the whole bit. You know? <laughs> it's so good too, <laughs> and I love the variety of it. Your version of all of me is so good that's that's just one of my favorite uh standards that's out there
I wanted to do a swing song, a, a Django-type thing, Django and Stefan Grappelli-type thing, mm-hmm. and couldn't figure out what to do. And my dad always liked this. I don't know why it popped in my head. Maybe because Steve Martin is kind of popular in the bluegrass scene these days. I think he does really good things for bluegrass these days. Uh, but he was in a movie called All of Me, and it was just always funny to my daddy. He liked that movie for some reason. And it just popped. I don't know. It just it clicked right there. And so I said, All of Me, let's do that. So we we took down that path a little bit. You also do all that You Ain't Going Nowhere, which is another one of my favorites to play live. So I was like, oh, yeah. cool, man. You do that one, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that is a great song. That's such a great song. Cool harmonies. It's just It's kind of got it all. <laughs> so swift, the rain won't lift, the gate won't close, the railings froze, get your mind off of winter time, you ain't going nowhere. Ooh, it's one of those songs that's slow, but you don't feel it as slow. You feel it as carrying itself as a, as a medium tempo thing, but it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, 80 beats a minute or something like, not a fast bluegrass type song, but you feel up about it, you know. <laughs> You approach it as a as a medium tempo type thing. So yeah, that, and, and Bob Dylan's lyrics, yeah, that's nothing wrong with that in the world. How did you um on that Monday Boys album? How did you guys pick the tunes? Is it just tunes that you just felt like doing? Because you have a great selection, everything from like Gold Rush and um and like Bluegrass Stomp to uh, like Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues and You Ain't Going Nowhere. Well, Mark. Mark Mark, my brother, a great flat picker, and he mostly plays in the country thing. He plays in the country band and always has country and country rock type things. But he's also a great flat picker. So he picked he picked about half the songs, and I picked about half the songs. So I I don't want to say I would have picked the more bluegrassy things, and he picked the more rocky type things that we might have did, but it's probably about the size of it. Cool. When you when you record there at your brother's, do you have like set mics that you like to use from your years of playing and such, or did he have the equipment? You know, Mike Geek, I am not. I don't <laughs> know what he uses. I know I have a little Nate Shift thing here. I bought. I think it's Reaper. Are you familiar with Reaper? Oh yeah, yeah. Re- Reaper is a, a, a digital workstation. They call it DAW or whatever, what have you. And then I got a, a Focusrite solo and uh, a little audio technica large diaphragm and and that's kind of what i use just here for fun mm-hmm. uh, which it is i've enjoyed that that's something i've kind of taken up this year i never really spent any time uh home recording in the like you know back in the day we used these little four track things i don't know if you remember those on I think they were cassettes i do i do remember those the old foss tax and Tascams. <laughs> yeah that's exactly right but not to tell on, on the digital age, but back on those days, there wasn't no overdubbing. You know, you did your little four-track, and you played it all the way through, and that was it. Right, right. <laughs> Nowadays, you can kind of cheat a little bit and work you something up that sounds good, and then go back and learn it as, as clean and strong as you can. And even if you got a raw sound, I mean, some of those old Bill Monroe albums, true. you know. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It took, you know, it, it becomes an acquired taste for some people. But man, it's just yes. it's uh it's just so cool sometimes to hear that just raw fiery take 
of, uh, mm. you know, like I love old Monroe brother recordings. Cause to me, it's just like, Holy cow. <laughs> These guys. Yeah. Are... Monroe was, was, was so stout, so stout before, before the bluegrass boys, you know, he was so stout. The Monroe brother stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, I mean, it sounds like you have a pretty musical family, So, uh, but let's talk about how you got into playing mandolin. The animal control contacted me. I started playing fiddle when I was about 11. So they said cats were showing up and they wanted me to stop playing fiddle. <laughs> so they suggested mandolin and I said, well, that's a good idea. Let's do, <laughs> let's do that's it. That's about the size of it. I'll just... Uh, Honestly, about the size of it. Uh, no, yeah, my mom, all my life, I've known bluegrass. You know, music has been in my house and family all my life. Yeah, I was born into a family of moms had a band all my life. Uh, her parents had a band, I guess, probably most of her life. Wow. Where'd you grow, where'd you, uh, grow up at? Grew up in Cumming, Georgia, North Georgia. It's about an hour north of Atlanta. Yeah, it used to be the country. Now it's kind of <laughs> not so country anymore. Yeah. But... Well, you know, back in the Andy Griffith shows and that type thing, and, and it's a little different, you know, but mm-hmm. um, you, you you learn to adapt. Um, but, yeah, like the, my great-grandfather, my granddaddy, uh, with turn of the century, from what I understand, he built and worked on fiddles was a fiddle player himself and also worked on guns. Uh, I don't know how that collates, you know, guns and fiddles. Maybe it does a little bit. (laughs) But he stayed busy from what I understand. And so there has been Appalachian music, uh, mountain music, probably before it was actually called bluegrass music in my family for a long time. Sure. Most of them, probably entirely on my mom's side. My dad's side, they had some scrab piano and that type thing in church and, um, Daddy actually played guitar in my mom's band. I say my mom's because she kind of uh, brought the music to him. He didn't really play music when they got together. But they had a band, and I guess when I was about four, five, I was four, uh, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. They had gotten a job up there. Lonnie Pierce, who is a um, kind of a storied fiddle player with the, are you, are you familiar with the Bluegrass Alliance? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they had played some shows together. The mom's band was Bluegrass Generation. And he had told mom, he said, well, if y'all come to Louisville, we could keep y'all busy. You wow. know, those hotels and ghost towns and all kinds of gigs, not festivals as much as just, you know, nightlife type thing. Sure. So we moved up there, and they started playing the Ramada Inns and this, that, and other. Uh, for about three years, we stayed up there. So it, she took in a lot of good music up there. They were playing opposite some of the, sure enough, big dogs in our in the industry. You know, the, the New South at the time, I think, had uh, Tony Rice and Ricky Skaggs, Jerry Douglas in the band. They were playing opposite of them. I've got pictures of mom on stage or actually them on stage with mom where they just if they were playing the Ramada on one side of the road the holiday end was on the other one get done they'd just party it up or <laughs> get together and have fun yeah. that type thing so and and she actually they cut let's see they cut a couple of records while they was up in Louisville and uh, uh, Danny Jones was mandolin player who was the original mandolin player in the Bluegrass Alliance and 
So Danny played Mom's Band, and they did a couple of records. Ricky Skaggs actually produced their second record. Oh, wow. Um, and he was with Boone Creek at the time. So it's pretty rich in, in music at that time that she was taking in. And I was, you know, going to babysitters and going in the basement. And so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get to enjoy that, unfortunately. I was kindergarten that type thing but but the fact is it was going on and it was around my uncle gary looper who's outstanding fiddle player mandolin player everything um he's actually mom's uncle because he's actually my great uncle so he taught me some fiddle and um i guess i did okay but it, it just you know i don't know i think those ft f holes were honest to god too close to my ears oh really <laughs> First of all, so I got to where I could play pretty legible, you know, were the tunes, I guess, what were the, some of the tunes, I'm, Billy and the Low Grand, I enjoyed playing that one, Fire on the Mountain. Um, I think I got to the shuffle on Orange Blossom Special and it was, it was time to do something else. <laughs> That song's had to ruin many a young fiddle player's career. <laughs> That's a make them and break them uh, <laughs> moment, I think. The, the shuffle on Owens Blossom special. So Gary, anyway, he like, there again, he had a double case. It was always just mandolin and fiddle. And that case weighed 83 pounds, I think. With <laughs> an extra beverage or two in it, it may weigh 100. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, at some point I picked his... Uh, Picked his mandolin up. He had a uh, he had a 1948, I believe, is what the year model was F12 that had been converted to an F5. Oh wow! Which is which is the, the F12 had a shorter neck by a couple of frets or something. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how how the difference is. But anyway, so to put an F5 neck in, it's pretty big surgery. So I think Gary Price did that. He's a uh, banjo maker, and I think he's made uh, some parts, and also makes good instrument cases out in Oklahoma. I think's where he's at. So he uh, top picked his mandolin up, and it just it, it made more sense. It made more sense to me. the The notes were there that I was used to playing, and it, it had a little pocket of air away from my ears yeah. or something. That it, that, <laughs> yeah. That it, that it suited me a little bit better, so I kind of took to mandolin at that point, and that was that. I was in sixth grade, I'm pretty sure around that time. So I was about eleven or something like that. So, so who did you start uh, listening to and 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 working on licks by and songs by? Who were your guys? Well, I tell you what, I had no problem listening to my family play. You know, they, they were all, you know, really accomplished players, and I'm sure that that settled just fine but uh, you know shoot uh, at an arm's reach you know there was danny jones who i mentioned earlier who was the original mandolin player in the bluegrass alliance there he was around son and you know you just don't get stronger bluegrass than that and uh 
let's see, pretty sure he was the first Lloyd Lore that I played. He wow. had a Lloyd Lore. Cool. And I couldn't play two chords hardly on it, but but I got to hold it and, and realize what it was because I think he had to go to the bank vault to get it. That's how <laughs> I remember it was in a vault. Oh, man. Because he was playing a Stelling, which I don't know if you remember Stelling. Stelling was a fine man. It was like a little A model. Stelling, funny-shaped A model. It was a cool little mandolin. And I remember it being the first, you know, mandolin I played. We played real easy and, and, and made you, oh, okay, that's how it's done, that type thing. But the Lord, Lord, you know, for some reason it triggered. I don't know if it's what it was, but it, I, I knew I was holding the, the big daddy at that point, you know. Right, right. Wow. Cool. But then you, then you, it ain't long before you, you know, discover the inner world of, of what's a good picker and what's hot. Sam Bush and Dole Lawson to this day, I had no problem with being my two favorites, you know. For sure. Both so good, man. <laughs> yeah, about that time, that was around 81. And uh, Quicksilver was really booming. I got to see the original Quicksilver, and that's kind of neat to say for my age group of person, you know, which was with Lou Reed before Randy Graham come on, respectively. So that was kind of a, you know, that, seeing that, and then also seeing Newgrass Revival around 83, and I, uh, I had... Uh, that was uh, my hair still parted right where it was parted that night. You know, I think. <laughs> well, I'm telling good. you, I, it was. I had heard bluegrass all my life, but at that point too, you got to realize in the '70s those guys had a more of a raw sound, and that's. I get into arguments with my aunts and stuff. Like, oh no, they would be. Well, I tell you what, that band in the early '80s. I think they started in October of '82. Not that I. No, but <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's about when they started, October of 82. And I tell you what, Baylor was at really coming on with something different. Uh, the appeal of the fiddle tunes on the banjo with Sam's strength. Yeah. Just pure uh, dominance of the band, for that matter, just a great leader, you know. Uh, and, and John and Pat, I, it's, I'm sorry, you know, it's, that's, that was fine music, really was. You know, the unsung heroes, mandolins, you know, you got Jimmy Goodrow. I'm, I, I just can't say there's anybody any better than Jimmy Goodrow. What a great mandolin player. Super underrated. Man, you know, one of the things about mandolins, they say practice posture and stuff. That guy had a back like a two by 12. <laughs> I mean, it was just when he played, it was, there was, it was, you felt him play, you know, and that was a, I always enjoyed his playing. Yeah, I, a funny story. I was playing a festival, I was about 14, I guess, in Alabama. And uh, I had a, at this time, I had acquired a, I got, what was it, an Alvarez. It had V on it. So it's had V Alvarez F model. And I thought I was on top of the world because it said V. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see V Gibson. Oh, yeah. Well, it said V Alvarez and I was hunky dory. I said, hey, that, that's it for me. Well, anyway, it wasn't the best man. Like, you know, the Dobro action type thing, really high action and uh, probably plywood, best I can remember. It probably wasn't maple or anything. 
And I was talking, Jimmy did always really nice. You'd see him and look straight up at him because he was such a hero and always real nice. And he says, well, you know, we're going to be playing that one today. Would you like to play mine? I said, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Wow. <laughs> I said, no problem. Well, at the time he had acquired an O'Brien mandolin, which is, it was an individual maker. I don't know much about him, but he made very many. Um, but he had his firm, and I can't remember if it was a 25. I think it was a 1925. He said, well, anyway, I'm not playing it here. Just keep it all day, and at the end of the day, bring it back. Whoa. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah. I felt like I should, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. All I needed to do was, was take care of it. And I, I did do remember sitting backstage uh, pretty much all day. Yeah. I don't think I left backstage that whole day with that mandolin and played it throughout pretty much throughout the day, you know. Wow, that's amazing. That, 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 isn't that nice of it? I mean, you yeah. know, I'm not sure I would give my 25 fern to a, a snotty-nosed 14-year-old <laughs> wanting to play. You know, they couldn't play, couldn't play ball the cabbage down, you know, legibly. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that was very, very nice of him. I thought it was. And he uh, he was a country gentleman at the time. Which very, when you talk about influences, there's no better bluegrass man ever been than and Charlie Waller and that any any configuration that was was the country gentleman was Tom's and my book. And so, did you know like straight out? I mean, obviously, with your mom being a a, a musician, professional musician, was was music was that just going to be the goal all at, at that point for you, even at fourteen? No, no. You know, I never thought about. I, I got a gig out of high school about a year out of high school with a gospel band that was full time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean it. It was full time, kind of. You travel. We traveled probably seventy five days a year. But no, I never. It never crossed my mind. No honestly. kidding. So when did you? What are some of those influences? When did they start creeping in? Because you definitely have some other stuff besides bluegrass in in your uh, playing. As we start looking towards like the Colonel Bruce Hampton stuff. So what was the right. what was the stuff that you started listening to that started? Um, influencing you in other directions you know i don't know i i thought about that you know you did give me a heads up on this interview a week or so so i've had a trip down memory lane cool <laughs> and i i just you know I, I never was much of a jazz guy i think it's maybe an educational thing maybe i don't have the gene that that requires that it wasn't natural for me you know i do love um I do love like the Django thing, the uh, the gypsy jazz stuff. It's pretty much to me hits on bluegrass pretty as as in cousin somehow. To me, the gypsy jazz and bluegrass is pretty easy to go room to room type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but jazz, you really, you know, shoot, that's that's something else. You know, you really have to apply yourself. So. I always, I always put jazz classical as, as, as a, a, a bracket and blues, bluegrass type. To me, bluegrass had more of the blues, uh, jazz, and, and, and classical kind of kind of buddy up or something like that. So I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, you know, I could throw a thing or two out there. I never really got into dog music. However. Uh, is there any better tone and, and than David Grisman? No. Uh, right. 
and playing. I mean, he's one of my favorites, just absolute tops. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a record uh, called Here Today. Are you familiar with a, a bluegrass record called Here Today? Uh, I, I must be because I've got a ton of his stuff, but it's not. It's... Vince, you had Vince Gill, Herb Peterson. Oh, okay. uh, yes, yes, yes. I know it now. Just a great record. He did. He was at the height of, of, of the dog music at that time. That was like 82, 83, something like that. And man, this bluegrass playing, to be able to come back to bluegrass and play it with his own style, with his own flair. But it just had, it had, you know, it, it was real bluegrass. You know, you felt the genuine thing going on that, that he had. So I have complete respect for David Grissom. But I think that it comes back to the, my, my thing with jazz, which maybe it's, I'm lazy. <laughs> apply, you have to apply yourself. Yeah, I don't maybe know, man. Has, you, uh, I would have never guessed that you didn't have any or much jazz background because the stuff no. on those uh, um on those colonel bruce hampton albums where did some of those crazy licks come into because some of that stuff is you know it, it's it's mind-blowing I had started listening to some things. I think a good band that I throw out there uh, is Montro. There's a great band that was a brief band called mm-hmm. Montro with Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they had like a steel drums in the band and mm-hmm. a couple other things, but they was really, in my mind, that was the kind of music I liked. Kind of, it was wine-drinking music almost, but it, <laughs> it, was, it, it really had a... Uh, 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 if you have Mike Marshall and Daryl Andrew in your, in your outfit, you're going to sound pretty dang good, whatever it is. So that uh, you check them out. You should check it. They only did a couple of three records, but it was Wyndham Hill, I think it was Wyndham Hill record label. Back in the late '80s, was was pretty popular, and uh, that was as close to jazz as I really touched on. But it was it was more I don't know, not easy. Maybe easy listening jazz would be a term that might be a formal term that that would fall fall into. And strength in numbers came out of that. Oh, I love that album.
Yeah. Yeah, that 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 did a did a I think turned everybody's head just a little bit of what acoustic music was at the time. You know, and, and that record holds up today as beautiful uh crafted songs. Um and tone and the tones of the instrument are just beautiful, all of them. Sam was just absolutely at the at his peak in my mind in the late eighties. Although Ugrass was doing more of a polished thing. His playing, I don't think, ever was any better, you know, than that. Which he he stands to argue with that, I'm sure, somewhere right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's as good as they are. Fiddle tunes and st- knowledge of fiddle tunes, there is no better than he is. Uh, but, but that record, I think, turned everybody on just a little bit, you know. And so after that gospel band, how did you, how did you find your way into the, uh, into the Aquarium Rescue Unit? Uh, it's kind of a kind of a windy story. Uh-huh. Uh, I used to I, I, out of high school. From the time I was probably fifteen, I played with a band called Clearwater, which is uh, it's a bluegrass band. We never actually recorded, uh, but we played all the festivals, Florida. I think we went to Missouri, um, just around the southeast a little bit. But Je- are you familiar with a, a guy named Jeff Autry? Yeah. Jeff Autry's yeah. a flat picker. Yes. Played, played with uh, Ed Gerlatimi. I played with John Cowan, I think, for 15 years or so. Well, he and I was in Clearwater together. But he had started recording. Scott Vestal had left Quicksilver, and Scott lived about 10 miles from Jeff. Well, they had buddied up. And so Jeff says, won't you come over here, Scott? Scott, say that, and we do some playing and recording. I said, Scott Vestal? Yeah, I said, well, let's see. I play strain 45 at 120 beats a minute. He plays strain 45 at 180 beats a minute. Right. So let me do some practice and I'll get back a hold of you. <laughs> get back to you. And so we had gotten a gig or two. And one of the gigs, there was a banjo player named Jeff Moser, who was a, he booked. He booked bands and bluegrass bands on into Atlanta. He booked Hot Rise, Doc Watson, all these bands uh, into Atlanta for shows. Kind of a booking guy. So he somehow word got around that we was playing. He said, "Why don't y'all come down and open for us?" Well, us was Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Oh wow! So we yeah, so we went down and opened at a little place called the Point in a really upscale part of Atlanta. <laughs> I say that with a chuckle. I say that with a chuckle, okay? Nobody's listening, right? So anyway, there was, I think, eight people in the crowd or something like that. So we opened up, we did our little show, and then, you know, everybody's got their experiences with, with meeting Bruce, and, 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 and ours was no different, wanted to guess our birthdays and this, that, and the other. So it was kind of experience. Kind of a, that you only have once, you know, and it it snowballed from there. In short, um, Jeff had a um, Mosier had a bluegrass band on the side. Well, Jeff Autry was playing guitar with that. He's just doing some gigs around Atlanta, just these little party type gigs, you know, the ones that actually pay money. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were doing that, and Bruce. Seen us one one at one of the gigs or something, and he just leaned over and said, "Man, won't you come sit?" And only in between cigarettes, "Won't you come sit, sit in with us sometime?" So he said, I said, "Sure," and I took him up and showed up the next probably the next night. You know, I was about twenty one, 
and uh, it just snowballed from there. And next thing I knew, we was, we was uh, on on our first tour. We went to New York uh, pretty quick with um, traveling around. Jeff, so Jeff, Jeff Mosier and another guitar player was the original band. There was actually an acquired and rescue unit before I joined, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Herring joined. And then Jimmy and I joined, I guess Jimmy and I joined about the same time, pretty much. And then the banjo player quit, and Charlie Williams, who had wrote several of the songs we did, he was the original guitar player, he quit. So there was the five of us, and it took off pretty quick by, let's see, that would have been January or February of uh, 90. And by by May, I just remember we was in New York uh, playing New York and always played, you know, living the lush life, sleeping on roofs in New York City. That was a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> a lounge chair, you ain't done nothing to you woke up in a lounge chair, sober, mind you, <laughs> in a lounge chair uh, on a skyscraper somewhere. You, the apartment was nice, but they couldn't fit us, so we had to sleep on the roof. Right. Hey, you do what you got to do. Yeah. You know? Well, better the roof than the street, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, true but it, it by, by end of that year we had a record deal so that you know it, right. it all you know came out we recorded two records with capricorn which is a really big label in the 70s mm-hmm. well they, they revamped uh early 90 uh walden phil walden great guy and he uh he i think what the first thing he signed was widespread panic pretty oh, good decision wow. Yeah. Pretty good decision. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and I mean, Bruce knew those guys. There was an inner, inner like, uh, friendship there. And so somehow word got around. He came to see us, or one of his guys came to see us and signed us up. And uh, the say the rest is history. I don't know. <laughs> two records with Capricorn. So now, were you playing electric mandolin at that point? I had bought a, a four string head built. Uh, and it just sounded really ticky. It just when you, I couldn't find a, a sound on it that that I liked. I, I resort to re, resort to using reverbs and things just to make it smooth out because it was like like sheet metal in my ears when I play. So I never was happy with that. But then I talked with Joe Glazier in Nashville, oh, who's yeah. a telly builder. I actually built Ricky Skaggs' uh, uh, Mandicaster. And he had one in the shop, and, and I paid him and, and took it. It was a fine man. I played that one for a couple of years. I guess it was like a little Telecaster. I always make the funny, uh, you know, if if you ever play electric mandolin, chop your stuff in half. Don't play like you're playing a mandolin like I did. Or otherwise, you'll play all these hot, fast licks, and then when you go back to an eight-string, you can't play them. <laughs> There's no way. That's that's what I did, you know. And then I listened back years later. Of course, I was a, a big talk about the first of this conversation. Big Ricky Skaggs. I mean, how can you beat Ricky Skaggs? Such a he's one of these that got better with age, you know. Just a great player. But anyway, when he played the the Mandicaster, it was more of a telly thing, you know. It had um, it was like half the notes or something. And when I played it, I tried to play all these sixteenth notes because I could all of a sudden. And then I'll pull up the eight string and, and uh, I can't do that. <laughs> so that's just a little wisdom to all you mandolin players out there. You know, Oak Hill was an advocate to slow things down, slow things down. And, and every song ended up being three times faster than it probably should be. <laughs> but, you know, that was the adrenaline. The crowds were, 
right off the bat, uh, after our first record came out, we had crowds. People, we didn't know them, but somehow they knew us, and that was a cool thing, you know. So the adrenaline, I think, took over, and uh, just such a good drummer, Jeff Sight, such a good drummer. He was the drummer in the band. And, and he, I guess he liked playing fast tempos too. So that's where we went. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we turned them on. Jimmy Herring's no slouch either at fast tempos. <laughs> no, he, he he likes some triple digit BPMs himself. I think. Yeah. Well, um, were you playing? Did you own an electric before you joined Colonel Bruce? No. Or was that after? I actually had it built. I actually had it built. I, I started with. The, I was playing acoustic when I when I was. Which, uh just first started with Bruce and them. That was very briefly, and then I contacted this guy, and he built electric guitars, and said, can you build me a hollow body? And I wanted more of a, a 335 jazz guitar sound. It just didn't have it. I don't know why. I couldn't find it. I tried amps. And then again, I'm not an amp geek, so I don't, I don't, maybe it was in there, and I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. So the side string was a solid body. So I'm sure that's why it, it, it's had more perk, you know, more more strength to it. When I played the notes, I could project out a little bit. And then, like, with how those when you guys worked on those tunes, do you guys have like a an approach in mind? Did you have like a vision that you guys were working on? Because it's 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 unique. You know, we never practiced. The only time I remember practicing was two times. One was we they rented uh, Capricorn rented us a space to record our second record. First one was live, and the only other time I remember was we practiced before some tour. We maybe it was the Horde tour. There was a big tour called the Horde tour. We we was on that ninety two and ninety three. Think Fish. Oh wow! You know we opened for Fish. Funny, I I take that back. Fish opened for us. Wow. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, hey. Fish opened for us in a, a hundred seat place. It wasn't full. They didn't nobody know who Fish was. Well, now they play for for the, the census in the state changes when they play a state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they play a hundred thousand people three nights in a row. It's something. What a great band too. You talk about tight. Now them guys are rehearsed. What took you back to the acoustic mandolin when um uh, on the on the mirrors of embarrassment. Yeah. Well, okay, let's see. I'll tell you, I had a uh, one of those moments where I just wanted to do it. I had my Davis Manlin, and I, I just decided, you know, that I, I wanted to play that. Instead, I was at the, the bottom line in New York City. It was the first gig. I remember. That's just one of those moments, you know. There's no reason behind it, really. Sure. You yeah. know, I know that Bruce really liked acoustic music. And I really think that's why Bruce eventually quit that band. You know, I quit first, and I think Bruce quit six or so months after. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it was a volume thing. All the bands Bruce was in post that was was at like half that volume. You know, more of a a performance rather than a, a concert, if you will. Out of all those, some of those, you must have had some stellar jams with some of those some of those bands i would imagine as it was kind of like quote unquote i hate labels but you know like the jam band circuit are there any that really stand out to you by chance you're talking about jams that we might have had yeah yeah like live shows or you know any any real momentous things that you remember from that time where you played with some players and it was just like one of those things that well not nothing really Mm -hmm. stands out but you know there was always 
the whole tour, I do remember there would be, you know, all the bands would do their hour set, and then at the end of the night, we would we was like first or second. I think some of the times they were nice and let us be second, but usually we opened the, open the, the show up for about half the about half the crowd. And <laughs> by the end of the night, we'd that'd be two or three o'clock in the afternoon, by the night was packed and big arenas. That was nice, and then everybody would kind of stumble <laughs> stumble back on stage and. And play a blues standard or something everybody knew. Uh, but not as far as, you know, intimate jams, not a whole lot. You know, there was some backstage stuff. Yeah. Sure. sure. The first time I met Bela, I think, was at, at uh, one of those shows. He the, the, They was early on in the Flectones, and they did the first board tour. Yeah, first or second one. And got to jam a little bit with with Bela backstage. I remember that was kind of cool. This is an incredible segue to use then, as Bela is on my notes oh. here, of how oh, you yeah. uh, how you. Ended well, he's up... a pretty good banjo player. You know? Yeah, that's right. He's pretty good. He knows yeah. all the notes. So how did that? How did you end up on the uh, Tales from Acoustic Planet? Because that's, I mean, that's again another, just uh, the the lineup on those albums is incredible. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That second one was really tight. Oh, yeah. Well, the first one wasn't really as much bluegrass as the second one. Right. second one geared much more towards the original. You're familiar with the Drive record. Everybody in bluegrass knows the Drive record. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think the second Planet record kind of was the stepbrother to that or something like that. I don't know what you'd say. But the first one really was just music. I mean, it, it really had no in a good way, didn't really have a direction other than the fact that Baylor had wrote the songs uh, and they were his music and had his flavor, but there wasn't, you couldn't categorize it as as much, you know, uh, in a good way. Uh, so, yeah, I had I had gotten buddies with, with Baylor. He called when I was with, the, still with Aquarius. I quit Aquarium in 93, end of 93. Mm-hmm. And, um, but before that, you know, we played some shows together. He just invited me up to his house. And first, I remember the first night I was at his house, uh, just jamming, uh, hanging out and in walks. Let's see. Here's, here's a little pink mandolin player story for you. You know, little pink guy from Georgia playing a tune or two. Well, in walks Jerry Douglas, Tim O'Brien, Edgar Meyer, Stuart Duncan, uh, to give you an idea of who was in this jam session and there I was, you know, looking straight up, mind you, at all these guys. You just can't imagine what heroes they are, you know, of, of, of my generation and, and even the generation now, these guys are the best. You know, just their tones and everything, you know. But I think Tim O'Brien was recording the, something with the old boys. He had a band after he had left Hot Rise. Oh, yeah. Called the old boys. Yep. That was really cool music. And they had been in the studio and they come over and, of course, <clears throat> they bring Edgar Mine. It was just really something else. It really was. Those guys are great. And, you know, the thing I've noticed about those, it's such an inner circle of players. Uh, 
but when you're jamming with with those guys, how easy would it be for them to just, you know, uh, mow you over with how good they are? But that just wasn't the case. You know, they was all to me very nice. Uh, giving with their music, you felt like you, your little break come up and play a tune, and, and you didn't feel that intimidated anymore. You know, that's awesome. It was, uh, yeah, it was. I just felt, and Bella is, is that way in particular. You know, his banjo play. You listen, he's not playing hard. You know, and it's a gracious thing when he's playing, and, and any of those maybe those caliber of, of players. You know, to me, they're sweet. Maybe that'd be the word for it. Damn. Did you guys record live when you recorded those tracks? I do remember recording those tracks. I sat right next to Tony Rice. I remember very clearly recording those tracks. Uh, I say sat. There was like partitions between. Yeah, I think those tracks were tracked live. I do remember having my parts pretty much worked out. I'd come up to Bella's house and uh, he had taught me the tunes as best he could. <laughs> and there was there was one man. I tell you, I couldn't. It was I think it's the third tune that I play on the radio, slower song. And I could not get that to save my life. So finally, he grabbed my mandolin and said, play this. He showed me a chord or two to kind of fumble through it. And that's what I did. I, I, I couldn't, you know, again, I'm, education has to come around some point to get caught. <laughs> <laughs> but I had my thoughts worked out, however, on the first two. So I knew them pretty well. But yeah. I was having a little, the, the second, there's a couple of teams in the, one of them, Tony and I start the tune and play like a rhythm rocking back and forth. And I was wanting to rush it. Mm-hmm. And that comes back to what I was saying before. Is I felt almost like, like he grabbed the hold of the beat there a little bit. Somehow, you know, you felt, you, you, I sort of felt the pocket, I guess you might say. And um, gracious players, you know, they play that over and over again. But yeah, that's how I remember it was we recorded the tracks live and then everybody would go back and touch up what they, you know. Sure. You're dealing with multi-million dollar studios. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a touch up or two. Absolutely. That's the business. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> What's it like to play with Tony Rice's rhythm? Right, so I played a, a gig with Tony Rice one time. I, Whoa. After I left Bruce, I, I called Ricky Septon's a great fiddle player. Yeah. He's one of my heroes. Yeah. All the way around mandolin player. Virginia Squires, I neglected to mention them earlier. My, one of my all-time favorite bluegrass fans. Uh, he and Mark Newton had come to one of our shows. I think it was one of the last tours I did on the Horde tour. And anyway, after I quit Bruce, I, I decided I'd call and say, the old sorry thing, do you know if anybody needs a manual player this type of thing around? And of course he didn't. Uh, but he said, we are doing a gig um, in Jimmy Goodrow. The manual player can't make it. Would you be willing to come and Help us, and I said, uh, "Yes, <laughs> I'll be there." Wow. But my man was in tune, 
And I've got actually a horror story about that. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, my key, one of my keys on my mandolin the night before stripped. And it wouldn't tune. I was going to be a seven-string Tony Rice number all of a sudden. Oh, my gosh. So I said, oh, my God. So I, I, I got on the horn and, and finally found it was a, what was his name? I don't remember his name. And he's a very well-known, had a music store in North Carolina, Harry West. Harry West was his name. Mm-hmm. And I finally found him back the, the before the internet, so you just kind of had to know your way around where the music stores were. You know? Right. So he had a set of keys, so and it was right on the way. My luck, everything was going back good then. So got by there and put the brand new set of keys on, got up there, and the mandolin would not stay in tune for nothing. Oh. I mean, just awful. New keys, you know, you just haywire. So I, I finally... Long story short, I did get to play a gig with Tony Rice one time, and that was a blast. I mean, you just can't imagine the, 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 the to play with Tony Rice, which is probably my all-time favorite bluegrass ensemble. It's probably oh, would man. be that mid '80s uh, Tony Rice unit. Hard to beat. Yeah, really hard to beat. Those guys were great, and Tony's voice. You know, God bless him. There, there's not been a better. You know, there's Lester Flat. And let's go ahead and go with Tony Rice. You know, Agreed. I love his yeah. voice, man. <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's so good. Yeah, his, and, and the rhythm will throw you. It threw me. You know, those guys, he and Wyatt, are like a watch. I mean, they're just unbelievable the way they play rhythm. You know, it's like the cross, you hear people talk about their cross picking thing they got going on, which is a lot of downstrokes. Mm-hmm. And then they're all coming upstroke, you know, and it's it just, Beautiful, just beautiful. But it throws you at first; it really does. Play Sally Good or something, and those guys are three minutes ahead of you. Try that. <laughs> yeah, Sharon Gildchrist mentioned his rhythm playing in the studio um, when she recorded with him. It was a good story. Well, you do got the metronome. You you know you do got the metronome. And I can, I'm pretty sure with Bela there was no metronome because you had the future man Roy Wooten playing drums, so you probably didn't need a metronome. <laughs> metronome is taken care of but you always in the one sense you do got what your sense of timing is but within a band you the sense is the other people too you know the way they're hearing it that has to gel it really does why did you um why did you leave the colonel bruce hampton and, and then go into these other things uh you know i felt i really felt like they was holding me back no. I was just going to say, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> did you really believe that? Did For a minute, really I was like, that? whoa, geez. <laughs> I'm like, I did not expect that answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, he seems so humble this whole time. <laughs> yeah. You said, what about this guy? No, that's cocky. That's cocky. Oh, These guys... One. I can't imagine playing with any better musicians than me. Just the best. I mean, all of them went on to do great, great things, you know, in their in their careers. Um, I, it was a volume issue more than anything when it comes down to it. I felt like underneath there was never tensions. Always good friends. We was always buddies. We read. We were behind. You know. You know how bands are. Some bands live on the other sides of the world. We tell them we were buddies. Mm-hmm. Cool. But I think it, it, it was just a, a, an issue of, of volume. It was really getting pretty loud. You know, I was playing with earplugs in, and you don't really feel the finesse of the band with earplugs in. 
Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure there is finesse with a band playing at 100 dec- 20 decimals a night. I'm, <laughs> right. But my that would be my number one answer. It really would. Mm-hmm. And it really was. I had a girlfriend at the time, maybe wanted to spend more time with her, which, you know, I'm sure that had a weighing on the whole thing, too. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And, and and I did love bluegrass. And I, I felt like bluegrass was, was, was more comfortable for me. That bluegrass and or more intimate music you know the the element of all those guys was was more of a rock fusion funk was where they was coming from and jazz of course also right um but and and i had a deep respect for that but i don't think i completely fit in with that um at the time i was listening they had introduced me some music though that i Oregon. This band called Oregon that was great. I take from it. Uh, Charlie Christian, uh, all sorts of all sorts of music that that I learned and that I, I wouldn't have heard of most likely any other way. So I take a lot from you know my time with with Bruce and the guys. It was a lot of fun. A lot it, of fun. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. I mean that. I mean that just that first live album. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like. That's like that. That album sounds that like that was a hundred percent live. Yeah, there was, and I remember wanting to touch up a thing or two. And they they wouldn't let us. Wow. Know, they they said no. That was a live one-off recording. It was actually a, that night was a video for Widespread Panic. They were doing a um, some kind of documentary video, so they had set all the equipment up, and so they decided to squeeze us in there to do our live record. And I remember that night it caused some issues. Oh, there no. were some words. Yeah, but it was the record company's final say. They had hired all the equipment in. Oh and wow! So that's that's the way that record. There was a little tension that night. I remember. <laughs> Chuck uh, Lavelle was on that record. That's an honorable thing to say too. Chuck Lavelle, you familiar? Yeah, absolutely. He's really a big concert conservative. What do you call that? Conservationist. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really big into that. Of course, he's got a pretty good gig too. I think. <laughs> yeah. Rolling Stones. Yeah. Well, not too bad. That's a pretty decent gig. He can to make have. the mortgage happen, possibly. Yeah, you know, if they you know, they're playing some smaller places, you know, the last few years. <laughs> they're coming around. They wrote a song or two. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, what a gig that would be. What a gig that would be. Yeah, but that be. was that was that that the first the live record was live, it was as advertised. And it got whatever Rolling Stones give, four stars. I got it on my wall up there, four stars. Oh Always. wow. All the way reviewed, so I'm pretty tickled about that. That's amazing. That's so great, man. And then you did the um, was that Kevin Williamson and Shadow Ridge? Was that that was uh, yeah, after after Colonel Bruce Hampton. That was the first thing after. Sure. Well, I actually I did a couple of records, one with Bell, and I actually recorded with my grandfather on the little thing. But yes, Kevin called him. It seemed like it was midnight one night, and um, I decided uh, uh, he, not that I decided he wanted me to come and maybe try out. He remembered me back from Clearwater days. I mentioned to you earlier with Jeff Archery playing the band mm-hmm. back in high school. Well, we played a lot of festivals. He His dad had a band called Red Moon, I think that's what it was. Well, they did all the sound for all the festivals around the the area. They was uh, southeast and so forth. They was big sound system people. But they also had a good bluegrass band. So he called, want me to come to his house and 
plane, I got up there and it was, let's say, he was a Nippy Reigns with playing bass. Uh, not a bad bass player. <laughs> not bad at all. Uh, Michael McLean played banjo, who's a royalty family. The McLean family's from Kentucky. Berea, Berea, Kentucky, great band, family band. Well, he was playing banjo, so I, I jumped at it. I said, sure. You know, we didn't play much. We probably played 10 times, 15 times, I guess, that summer, something like that. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it wasn't a whole lot. And, um, great playing on record, that album. Though. Great playing. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That was with Pine Castle. I think that was Kevin's second. You know, his family band are really doing good now. The Williamson Branch is what they're called. They're, they're tops of bluegrass right now. They're playing everywhere. Wow, family cool. band. Him, his wife, and three daughters. Oh, and no they kidding. Cool. great. Wow. Yes, you'll have to check them out. For sure. Kevin's, Kevin's a good guy. He sure is. You mind if we talk gear real quick for a minute? I do gear. I sure do. Awesome. What's your, um, what's your current main axe? Well, you know, I only have one. I've got a, um, stumbled into a, a buddy of mine, had a 1980 S5Ls, one of the first ones, Gibson Man ones. Oh, wow, one. yeah. And I think they went in production in 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, 78, they built three. 79, they built 15. I've talked to Roger Seminoff about this and also George Gruen. And let me give you some advice. Don't ask George Gruen a question. <laughs> <laughs> He will not. I'm telling you, he knows where that splinter, what tree it came from. Uh, he knows the, the tint of the, the ivory that went on that thing. He, oh, that is so I, funny. No kidding. He's, he is the best. Of anything. But anyway, yes, I've, I've stumbled into a, an ADF-5L that I love. I've, I've got no problems with it. I've played it several lately. Uh, really, really nice mandolins. Um, and I'm just, just as happy as I can be, you know, with a, a fraction of the price. So I've, I've, I've had it, had it for about six years now and just got it set up and, and a little advertisement. Lynn Dudenbostel is the best. I mean, he really knows his stuff as far as setting one up. So like, yeah, I got a new nut bridge, frets. He wanted to put the Evos and I, I'll tell you what, it's like wrestling alligator. I had to, everybody's <laughs> going with these Evos now, but I wanted to go. Gibson, the little, the little bitty banjo. Oh yeah, no kidding. Or whatever. I don't know if they're steel or what. I don't know. I, everybody's using them. They're the, they're the hot thing. All the boutique mandolins. That's what they're in. They're, they're. If I tell you, if they was, if they was in a white nickel color, I would have went with them. Probably would have, because he said he had them in my size, but they're gold, and it just, I said, ah. I don't know. Maybe Evo's not listening, so they won't miss out on a deal with me or nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> Need to tee a bunch of people off. Oh, not but at all. But it's funny because my, my tailpiece and my keys are gold. Mm-hmm. The ferns had gold hardware, a little bit there, and the, the Lord Lords had nickel. Right. You know, but the ferns that came out after the Lord had gold. Mm-hmm. That was a, uh, I don't know what that, that's like the varnish. They also went with lacquer. I'm really not a historian. I'm acting like I'm one right now. But, <laughs> That's all you got to do, uh, man. <laughs> yeah. So I thought about going with Evo, but I'll I tell you what. But Lynn is the best. He knows a trick in there that, that pulls the best out of your man. It's like a good doctor if you, you don't want to change. You That's know, great. He, he does a lot of repair work, too, from what I understand. Yeah. What kind of, uh, what kind of, strings, um, what kind of strings do you use? 
Well, I've used GHS LSD 250. Oh, okay, cool. That's a silk, and I think it's the Dole Lawson's thing. Maybe he uses it, or maybe not. I've heard it was the Dole Lawson's thing. But mm-hmm. say it on the pack, but it's like a vintage type thing. Uh, I get them free. I mean, uh, Mom's got a deal with GHS, and I eat that up. And, and, yeah, buddy. And use Use the crap out of them. That's right. The, so, the southern weather. The southern weather will eat those strings right up too. That's a good deal to have. You know what? <laughs> yeah, about about three or four hours, and it's time to change. Sure. Yeah. How about um? How about <laughs> picks? Well, you know, I, it's it's probably not really uh, the brightest thing to say, but I I've always used quarter shell. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always used. I've tried blue chip and this, that, and the other, and, and animal rights. I'm sure they'd really love me saying that. You know? <laughs> but I, <laughs> I've always just found the tortoise shells to be more dense, and they just have a, a tone that I don't think can be duplicated, you know, They're really rich. I'll take the pointy end of a perfectly triangle tortoise shell, and I'll just round the point, round the points off and sand them and buff them out. I don't say anybody. I, I think Dole Ross and some of these other players play with a teardrop pick with the point end, and that's a mandolin geek thing. You know, I just don't say how in the world they do that. I mean, I never could be sound like they're doing sheet metal or something when I was <laughs> playing with that. I always had to turn it to the round end. I, that's what I do with the tortoise. I just round them off. And, you know, there again, I've got a good it's, – it's awful to think about going to the hardware store and buying a safe in case your house burns down your pit's mate. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's funny. That's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's classic. Well, I got two more questions for you here, Matt. Um, and the first one, the first one is if somebody was listening to this podcast and you wanted to give them some advice and, on, on something to work on, just 10 minutes a day if they, they didn't have, you know – hours to play, what would you recommend something to, to help somebody get better? Ten minutes a day. Well, you know, I get my mandolin out of the case every day, and I think that everyone should get their, all of us mandolin players should get their mandolin out of the case every day. I really do believe that. You know, even if it means going to the doghouse because of it, you <laughs> need to get your mandolin out of the case. Ten minutes a day, I and I'll, I'll steal a little bit. I've heard this on your podcast and someone before is, is to find a sweet spot and or a good sound, you know, to find that, that, that to make a good sound. That's what made a tremolo. Make your first few chords. Uh, make your first few hot licks, if you will. Um, you know, heck, if you really smooth with your first 10 minutes, take off on Odell Clark or something, just wide open, that's fine. <laughs> but wherever your sweet spot is attached to that, um, and and I, being in a band, as, as in a lot of us, a lot of us mandolin players, I'm sure they are, you know, we have songs within that band. And I, I tend to practice with my practice those songs, you know, mm-hmm. um, to keep keep fresh on what, what I'm doing, being sure. focused. Uh, my breaks, uh, how to chop behind someone else's break, guitar playing a hot break. You want to have a certain feel behind that. Um, but I think number one with 10 minutes a day is your bookmark. What were you doing yesterday? You know, mm-hmm. uh, can you pick back up right where you left off and it'd be a little better than, than where you were? Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds that great, sound man. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, but. But but you got to find that sweet spot. Yeah, you know, that's sweet a spot. yeah for sure. 
bookmarks. Bookmarks. I'll, I'll I'll beat my head against the wall trying to do something and quit. Just quit. Come back the next day, and I can do it. Or or closer. Or to my knowledge, I'm closer. So don't be hard on yourself and be you know have that little. I can't do it, but I'm I'm trying. And then mm-hmm. come and put it down. The next ten minutes, you pick your number back up. Maybe you can. Yeah. You know, see yeah. where your bookmark was. Driving it in Very the ground important. is detrimental. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just, just like pushing yourself to the point of where you can't at even stand it. At some point, you can't. Yeah, at some point, hey, I can't do this. I, <laughs> I understand this. I know what my fingers are supposed to do. <laughs> right. But, hey, tomorrow's 10 minutes. I'm going to come back. Maybe they, they will be a little bit better, you know, more in tune with it anyway. Yeah. Awesome. Please, yeah. And then um, it is mandolins and beer. And so I'd like to ask oh. if you uh, if you have like a, a a beer that you currently enjoy or when you're picking some mandolin. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, now that being the point, I I've never mixed two. I I never I don't see how these not to throw names. I don't see Rockstar. I don't see how in the world they can do that and actually get out there and play. But they <laughs> right. do, and that's fine. I enjoy it. You enjoy it. Everybody. I couldn't. I, I never could mix the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will have a, a, you know, I'm not too adventurous with my uh, Bud Lightus. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> you know, a domestic, a domestic way to go. And I'm I, maybe I'll come. You're in Charleston, right? Maybe I'll come yeah. up there and you can show me into, uh, some of this more adventurous. I'll stuff. take you. I, you you come you come to Charleston. I'll take you to some brewery places. We could play some mandolin. That'd be amazing. That's the ticket. Sounds like you're on. Awesome. Well, Matt, I can't even tell you how excited I've been to to have this on the schedule and to uh, and to get to talk to you. You uh, you're one of the you're one of my favorites, and it's it's an honor to have you on here. Daniel, thank you so much. I've listened every week, and and I'm going to continue to do so. That's, oh, that blows my mind. <laughs> thank you so much. What an honor to talk to Matt. Thank you so much for doing that, Matt. And as promised at the beginning of the podcast, here is the version of Mo Better Blues. That Matt and his brother uh, Mark and Jeff Sipe and Brad Williams put together here. And it's available on YouTube. You can find the link at mandolinsbeer.com. But here's a version that Matt wanted you all to hear. Cheers, everybody. Mm-hmm. 